Israel, uh, up to this point in their exodus experience, that is, leaving Egypt behind, has been its own worst enemy, its own enemy. It has been dysfunctional uh, from within. It's only disbelief and its discontentment with the route that the Lord has taken them, with what he has provided them or not provided them with, has produced a bitter spirit and a spirit of entitlement within themselves. And it's manifest in grumbling, complaining uh, to the Lord and to their leaders about them. And it's caused them to be divided, discouraged, uh, well, and defeated spiritually. But the threat now becomes outside. It's external again. Now, the Lord had uh, delivered them from uh, a taskmaster, a grievous taskmaster. But now uh, he's leading them to a place to serve a new master, still, still servants, still slaves, but no longer to a, a menacing taskmaster, but to a, a merciful and a gracious sovereign Lord, God himself. But along the way, um, they are indeed being pressed into sanctification. It is becoming more holy. They're becoming the people of God that he has called them to be. The journey to their promised place of rest goes right through enemy territory, goes through the wilderness, and their time will be marked by conflict, marked by warfare. Many of us who begin walking with the Lord don't recognize, we're not told, Uh, when we're presented with the good news of Jesus Christ, that the Christian life is going to be one filled with conflict, with turmoil, with warfare. But it it is and will be. As as we look at this passage, uh, Exodus 17, and uh, Pastor Bill was was flexible enough uh, to to leave out the fun portion. We're in the war, war, war part. This passage actually goes all the way through verse uh, chapter 18. And it is, it is how the Lord is forming his leadership and forming his people. In this vignette, we see the leader at war. In chapter 18, we'll see the leader at witness, at worship, and at work. Isn't it nice how it wor- works out that way? Yeah, That's not inspired. That's probably perspired by me. But as I, as I see all of this fitting together... Um, I I realized I'm not going to make it through. So we'll look at the first vignette, the leader leader at war. In a word, the enemy is Amalek. Amalek. Um, He will be the arch enemy of Israel for generations to come. He will be a thorn in the side of King Saul. Um, Amalek himself is the grandson of Esau. And you know Jacob and Esau fame, right? Twin brothers who just combative with one another. Jacob, also known as Israel. And here, now we have the descendant of Esau continuing to to provoke and prod at the brother in Amalek. 
Amalek uh, is following the, the line of his grandfather. He's a godless man. Hebrews would define him that way. Amalek, Amalek is the ancestor to Haman, the Agagite of Esther infamy in the story of Esther. So you, you see that this enemy is just the beginning of its, of its conflict in the world. Well, let's, let's, let's look at this in just a few movements. First is the, the invasion itself, right? The incursion. I, um, when we go back to Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 17 and 18, we get a description of the kind of attack that Amalek uh, put upon Israel. The, verse 8 in Exodus simply says, Amalek came and fought at Rephidim. But Deuteronomy 25, 17 says, Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and did not fear God. That is, Amalek did not fear God by uh, making a surprise attack, an ambush, not a head-on attack, as would be honorable and noble, meeting in the battle of field, field of battle, but no, sneaking around the back and picking off the stragglers. This is the kind of enemy that he is. But you know, the enemy, enemy throughout the, the life of God's people does this, sets snares, sets traps, sneaks up from behind. The psalmist, Psalm 62 says it this way, Hide me from the secret plots of the wicked, from the throng of evildoers who wet their tongues like swords, who aim bitter words like arrows, shooting from ambush at the blameless, shooting at him suddenly and without fear. They hold fast to their evil purpose. They talk of laying snares secretly. Now, there the psalmist obviously blends the, 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 the physical warfare uh, of bows and arrows with the interpersonal warfare, conflict, relational tension with words and tongues. We'd still have an enemy. Peter would describe our great enemy as a roaring lion seeking whom he might devour. Now, word devour is like to, to gulp down. Uh, that's the kind of enemy that we still have. The devil. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. The enemy is indeed deceptive and shrewd and attacks us at our points of weakness, our points of vulnerability. We have, we have places when we're, when we're tired. The enemy easily is able to throw a fiery dart at us and we respond impatiently, angrily, When, when we allow other things to control us, other substances or donuts themselves to control us, food, we allow those things to control us and it, it is a platform for the enemy to defeat us, to pull us down. When we, when we, when we walk into places, the bakery, just, just to look, 
just to get a whiff. You know, I'm just, you're just, I'm just walking into asking for trouble. And you do that, maybe not the bakery. Maybe the pub, maybe a certain restaurant, coffee shop, um, maybe the theater, maybe your computer workstation, monitors facing so no one can see what's on it and you can quick click when someone walks in the door. When, when we're just lollygaping through life, Unaware, unalert, sneaking up behind us. When we're, well, in this passage, I guess we could make the application, when we are prayerless. And that, that's in essence what it is to be unguarded, to not be alert, to not be on watch, is to be prayerless. And this is when the enemy is able to sneak in, pull us down, gulp us down and defeat us. You know the places of weakness. You know the places of vulnerability. You need to be honest enough to confess them to yourself and to one another, to the Lord. Now, even Paul talks about this, uh, this weakness of his, this vulnerability. He calls it a a thorn in the flesh as a messenger of Satan. Isn't that fascinating? He, he, knows that, he knows that God's all in control of these things, even as Israel led, uh, was led into the wilderness by the Lord himself. Paul recognizes as he writes to the Corinthians that, that there, is, there is, in fact, a, a thorn in his flesh flesh, a minister, a messenger of Satan, it could, be, it could be a place of entrapment. It could be a place where the enemy is to berate him. The enemy is to defeat him. The enemy is to get him down. But Paul, in his weakness, clings to the Lord himself, who is strong and mighty. Peter would know this kind of weakness as well as he's with his Lord in the garden and Jesus says watch be on guard be alert and pray the spirit's willing the flesh is weak and Peter falls asleep not alert not on guard prayerless and sleepy the spirit's willing but the flesh is weak but we have a high priest who can identify with our weaknesses and yet without sin. He was tempted in every way and yet wasn't defeated. Amazing. But we need to recognize that there is an enemy and that enemy doesn't fight fairly. This, the word hand is used seven times in this paragraph. That, that's just, you know, the number of completion, the number of perfection. And the, the author has, has put that in there to show us that this is a complete unit and that, and that there is a complete thought. And hand is a key term. There's two actions of the hand here. Right? We kind of identified one as the, 
the, the hand of surprise, the hand of, of treachery. But here, here comes the, the two hands, one holding the sword and the other holding the staff. Uh, these two actions are really important. The sword and the staff. Uh, one commentator puts it this way. He says, it takes intercession on the mountain and intervention in the valley for God's people to know victory. Intercession and intervention. And they, they need each other as Joshua fights with the sword and Moses wrestles in prayer. And neither really can be effective without the other. Kind of shows us this beautiful interaction of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Well, let's look at the intervention part first, the sword in the valley, the, the hand ready for the fight, verses 9 to 13. Uh, as Amalek has indeed uh, attacked, Moses goes to Joshua and says, choose some men, not every, not every man, but some. So this is a chosen group. They're drafted. But they're select warriors. Now, previously, Israel, Israel would, would fight differently. Do you remember the previous uh, confrontation with the enemy? In Exodus 14, the Lord instructs Moses to instruct the people. He says, fear not, stand firm, see the salvation of the Lord. The Egyptians whom you see today you'll never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. Amazing, divine intervention. But this time now Israel is under the command of Joshua who engages the enemy head-to-head, toe-to-toe, and hand-to-hand. And Israel would overwhelm, would destroy, would defeat Amalek. Verse 13 tells us this, ultimately. Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. But the battles would persist, even as we talked about already. And, and David, David celebrates this skill set that God has given to him to wield the sword. His gifts, his talents, his abilities, even as a warrior. Psalm 18, he trains my hands for war that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. He's given me the shield of your salvation. Your right hand supported me. Your gentleness made me great. You see this synergism of David's skill and God being his shield in salvation. Psalm 144, similarly. Blessed be the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands for war, my fingers for battle. He is my steadfast love, my fortress, my stronghold, my deliverer, my shield, in whom I take refuge, who subdues people's under me. Again, that synergism. Psalm 149. Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song. His praise in the assembly of the godly. Let the high praises of God be in their throats and two-edged swords in their hands. You see the, the combination of worship and warfare. Praises in their throats and two-edged swords in their hands. Indeed, the army of God would go out led forth with his steadfast love endures forever. His covenant promise to his nation, to his people, Israel. Worship and warfare. In fact, worship is warfare. 
And we of the New Testament um, are also to fight the good fight of the faith, aren't we? Paul would, would write this to Timothy. I have fought the good fight. He tells us that we do have weapons in the right and in the left. Though we walk in the flesh, I'm sorry, uh, 2 Corinthians 6 first. As servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by the Holy Spirit, by the power of God, with weapons of righteousness in the right and in the left. Weapons of righteousness in the right and in the left. Are you armed? Are you equipped? Did you come ready for battle? Worship is warfare. Are you ready to engage the spiritual forces of darkness when we gather in this place and praise the name of Jesus? And as we go forth, testifying of his name. 2 Corinthians 10, similar. Though we walk in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and lofty opinions raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, ready to punish every disobedience. We wage war. Our weapons are not that of the world, not the sword, not the media, not the politics. The weapons of righteousness in the right and in the left. Spiritual weapons done with the character and the nature of Christ. Powerful, yet passionate. Yes, we wage the good fight. We stand side by side, contending with one another, striving for the faith of the gospel. We're to be sober, having the breastplate of faith and love and the helmet of salvation upon us, 1 Thessalonians 5. Yes, we are warriors. We're fighters for the faith, contending for the gospel. But I'm reminded of the old Reformed hymn. Did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be. Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth, his name, from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. Lord Sabaoth, Yahweh, Sabaoth, Lord God Almighty, God of hosts, is his name. God, Exodus 15, God is a warrior. And when we suit on the armor of God, it's his armor we put on, and it fits. But it is all the battle belonging to the Lord, isn't it? So, yes, we have the sword in the valley, but we have the staff on the mount, the hands raised in faith, hands ready for the fight. The staff on the mount alongside the sword in the valley is essential, and the, the lifting of hands is, is a quintessential expression of prayer. The psalmist puts it this way, Psalm 141, let my prayer be counted as incense before you, the lifting of my hands as the evening sacrifice. And the imagery is enhanced when we get to verse 16, which is an extremely challenging uh, verse in the biblical language, but I think we get enough of the essence about the hand upon the throne of God. 
perhaps the later imagery uh, of the temple period grab, grabbing onto the horns of the altar and asking and pleading to God for mercy. The hand reaches for the throne of God, approaches the throne of grace. Is this not a picture reminding you in Hebrews 4? We have a great high priest. Let us with confidence then approach the throne of grace that we would receive grace and find mercy in time of need. Approaching the throne of God. Hands lifted high. I do not enjoy roller coasters. I've done them. I am not the kind that gets in the roller coaster and does this. I'm the kind that gets my feet pressed firmly to the front and my hands gripping tight and you know, leveraging myself back as firmly as possible so as not to move or jostle. Now, Gravitron, no problem. Get me in Gravitron, you know, I don't know, they call it something different these days. It's the centrifugal thing that goes round and round, like how fast is that? 140 miles an hour? Is that what it was, Lloyd? 98, okay, 98, 140. <laughs> 98 miles an hour, Lloyd and I were, had coffee and we were talking about this and I, I did this, I, and I love this, Gravitron. You, you stand against the sides, not strapped in, nothing. And, and it starts spinning, and the sides start elevating. And like, you're not touching the bottom. No hands. I'm like, I think I could go upside down. And so I did. Like, I'm spinning round and round, and I'm upside down, and the buddy next to me, he's, he's looking at me like, <laughs> we got off, and, um, well, I can't describe what happened when we got off for my buddy, but I, it was a thrill. Okay, I get that one. Roller coasters, no way. But we each have our expressions. But it is that, look at me, no hands. Right? Confident going forth. I'm okay. I'm not in control, and I'm okay with that. Are you? Hands lifted up in, in praise and in petition, in, in worship, is like saying, I'm not in control, and I'm okay with that. Let's go. And the Lord takes us on the journey. And it is an intense, it is one of ecstasy when we are united with him. This is an expression of intercession with hands lifted up, and we approach that throne of grace confidently. This is, in fact, a relationship with spiritual warfare in the New Testament as well. Prayer, intercession, supplication. Um, Ephesians chapter 6, we know this section, I suppose, as the, the armor of God section, the spiritual warfare uh, quintessential text of the New Testament. Verse 13 begins, take up the whole armor of God, and then verse 18 goes on to say, praying at all times in the Spirit. 
Now, the reality is there's only one way to pray in the Spirit. In the Spirit does not mean a certain kind of language or other kind of utterances or any kind of special experiences. You can only pray when you are in the Spirit. And in a week or so, we will indeed celebrate Pentecost Sunday, 50 days after Easter and the blessing of God sending the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, baptizing the church once and for all time with that Spirit of grace. Take up the whole armor of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. You see the connection between spiritual warfare and intercession. Indeed, our Warfare is worship and intercession. So, the sword in the valley, the staff on the mount. This is a very strange section, verses 13 to 16, isn't it? But we'll call this the stylus on the papyrus. Uh, I, did, I, did, I did verify that indeed they did writing on papyrus around um, 2,900 B.C. in Egypt. Okay, I can legitimately use the word papyrus. Uh, this, this is the first place in the Scriptures that mentions anything about writing down the words and the works of God. Moses is given this instruction. The Lord said to Moses, verse 14, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua. Hmm. You see, they're going to meet the Amalekites again. And this memorial document prepares them for the foe in the future. And they're forgetful, remember? It's a scroll of remembrance that would help them remember the works and the ways of the Lord over their enemies. Now, I, I don't, I don't want to stress this too hard, but might there be a kind of application to the believer to write down the works of the Lord in your life? Might, might there be this discipline of journaling, spiritual journaling, to, to document what God has done today. I, I'm not a, a tremendous writer. I'm not a great disciplinarian when it comes to journaling, but I have a little book that I do make bullet points in of things that have happened, things that go on. Some of them seem to be quite mundane until I look back over them and see some significance, some, some progress, yeah, some setbacks. But it's curious, isn't it, that the Lord specifically says, write this in a memorial book and, and recite it to Joshua. Make sure Joshua hears. Make sure the next generation knows what I did to this generation and for this generation. It, it, we're, we're in a, a life season as a congregation and, 
And as I'm sharing in listening, um, well, even my own family, as we try to convey the stories of grandparents to the grandchildren, I'm like, I, I, my information is partial. Oh, that my great-grandparents had journaled. And we would have some way to go back and, yes, not just, not just the interesting things of how in the world did a family named Johansson get changed to Kindy? Not by marriage or anything. Great-grandpa Johansson shows up and on the East Coast as a, as a Johansson, and by the time he gets to Minnesota, he's a kindy. Don't you wish you knew? Maybe you don't. I do. I mean, I could guess there's a little place in the other side of Michigan called Kindy, Michigan. Maybe, maybe he took a boat that far, worked, saved up money, Took a boat the rest of the way around the Great Lakes, finally got to Minnesota. Well, there's too many Johansons here. Uh, let's change it to the last farm I worked on. I don't know. Good story. We don't want just stories. We want, we want to know what the, the heritage is. And not just the biological, the genetic, the the geographical history, but the spiritual journey and pilgrimage of your life to the next generation and the next generation. Is there a way that you can pass it on? Don't, don't be so myopic in thinking only of your life, your generation. That, that's kind of like the, the Hezekiah um, problem. Like Hezekiah kind of went with the Lord and then he kind of diverted from the Lord and the Lord says, okay, Hezekiah, you're done. And Hezekiah says, oh, forgive me, Lord. And the Lord says, all right, I forgive you. The judgment won't come in your lifetime. It'll come later. And Hezekiah goes, Phew. at least it's not me. My sons, my grandsons. Now, we, we have this, I, I, I sense this as well, as we, as we share in, in fellowship. Maybe it's not necessarily fellowship, but we're talking politics. I, that's probably not fellowship. Even if we agree, it's not, that's not. Fellowship is around the cross. And we, what in the world is going to happen to our kids and our grandkids with the trajectory of this country? Well, that, that is a serious question. And uh, an ominous thought, isn't it? But, you know, the economy isn't the main thing. The gospel and the kingdom of God, that's the main thing. And are we concerned for the next generation and the following generations? Do we have a, a multi-generational vision of the gospel of Christ going on and explaining, should the Lord tarry? He doesn't return. Not yet. Not today. Maybe tomorrow. Until then, are we faithful? Well, I, I waxed a bit eloquent on this. This really, this is inscripturated. 
This is God's word to us. God has given us the memorial book. And we have it in his word. And there's, there's just tremendous historical evidences that, that support the, the truthfulness of these documents, the historicity of these pages. And, and I know I get a little geeky and you're like, okay, Todd, who cares about seven hands within a paragraph? You know, what, what that shows us is the literary beauty, not only within the paragraph, but when we see the unity of the Bible as a whole. And boy, friends, when we get, when we get to the law aspect of Exodus, you are just going to have your socks blown off with the unity of the scriptures in the Old Testament. I tell you, it is exciting. This is not a merely man-crafted book of stuff. This is a divine origin. Psalm 147. Wasn't that a beautiful uh, Choral piece, choral piece this morning. As I was preparing for the service uh, early, early hours this morning, uh, I read through Psalm 147. And it, it marks God as our creator, God as our provider, God as the one who forms the nations, God, God as the one who reveals himself to us. And here, here comes near the end of the psalm, what God does. He sends out His command. His word runs swiftly. He sends out His word. He declares His word. Praise the Lord. Yes, He's made us, but He hasn't just left us here uh, in a created world to tick off by itself. He is revealed himself in this world. Yes, as creator, but also as a redeemer, a savior. And it is this word that is living and active and sharper than a dual-edged sword. Dividing between joints and marrow and piercing soul and spirit. It makes us an acceptable offering, holy unto the Lord. God's given us the scriptures showing us who he is and what he has done and who we are. Not necessarily what we're supposed to do. We love that part. We love the law, don't we? We love it. Just, pastor, tell me what to do. Well, I mean, there are things to do believe, trust, as our song of preparation, know God. Know God, who he is and what he does, and know who and what you are. I mean, we get caught up in the legalism like, can you, like, this battle is going on down below. And Moses starts out strong, hands lifted up and staff and then he gets, you know, start, oh, oh. I mean, he's 80, probably 80 years old by now. And, and, oh, boy, man, I'm tired. Boy, those guys are tired too. They're starting to lose the battle. Well, what are we going to do? Well, I don't know. I got to keep praying. Hands up. And then the Israelites start winning again. 
I wonder how many times he did that before they realized what was going on. And then they realize what's going on, and what do they do? Come up with a mechanistic way to make it happen. Here, you sit down on the rock, and we'll tie his hand to this shoulder and the other hand to this shoulder. and Legalistic, right? Letter of the law. Well, if my hands are up, then I'm praying. I don't believe that was Moses' heart. But you can easily see how we can turn it into this. Got the right formula, got the right incantation, got the right method, and we can get God to do it. We, we watched a, a fantastic video last night by the Dude Perfect guys. It does this not fit. I told them. I told them, I said, this could be an illustration. But I can't tell you. I, 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 but they know. The two young ones know. They understand. God is, yes, our champion. He's our victor. And he gets all the glory all the time. All the time. And, and Israel is not going to win every battle. And indeed, when, when God looks most weak, does it not look like defeat? When Jesus has his hands hanging high, does he not look dead? He is dead. Is God dead? When God looks and appears to be at his weakest, that is when he is most strong. Jesus is the victor. How do we summarize all this? I need to, to move quickly. Uh, we, we talked about a lot of different applications, but let me just give you three uh, overview reminders. Jesus is our greater Joshua who fights for us and has the victory. Revelation 12, 11, they have overcome by the word of their testimony and the blood of the Lamb. In fact, Jesus is the Greek spelling of the Hebrew Joshua. It's the same name. What a foreshadowing. But we have one better, not just with a sword in the valley, but one who has overcome death itself. And Jesus is a greater Moses who is interceding for us. We read from Hebrews 4, we could go to Hebrews 7, a great high priest who forever lives to save to the othermost those who believe on him and ever lives to make intercession for them. His hands never get tired. He is all-powerful and all-present for his people. And he loves you and is constantly bringing you to the throne of the Father, ever living to make intercession for you. You have no excuse, no reason for defeat spiritually in the Christian life. Do we have ebbs and flows? Absolutely. 
But just as much, well, this is another application, sorry. Just as much as Moses needed Joshua and those select men to go down into the valley, he needed Aaron and Ur to come alongside him to help him with the burden. We need one another. We are not called to discipleship alone. 